Welcome to the Breaking the Stars podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. The United States makes up 25% of the world's incarcerated population. In other words, the United States has the largest prison population in the world. With that being said, California has the second highest number of prisoners, second only to Texas. On today's Breaking the Stars episode, we interview Kenyatta Leal, who went to San Quentin Prison on a life sentence under California's Three Strikes Law. For those of you that have never watched 13 by Ava DuVernay, shout out to Ava DuVernay. You guys should definitely check it out to get a better understanding of mass incarceration and the issues around that. But today, you know, since you guys don't know about San Quentin Prison, you may know about it. But for those of you guys that don't know, San Quentin is a high security prison in California that not only has a gas chamber, but also is the state's only death row for male inmates. On this episode, Kenyatta talks about what led him to prison, his mentors inside, how he got released, and how a program called The Last Mile Project, run by Chris Redlitz and Beverly Peretti, taught him the tech skills he needed to get a job in tech. It's an amazing episode that goes way deeper on a lot of subjects. And if you want to learn more about um, mass incarceration, you should just definitely check out Divine's episode. Um, and if you guys have any feedback for us, you know, join the community on Facebook. Tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, reach out to Kenyatta directly with his contact info. Uh, we're going to do some amazing things together and check it out. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arthur and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah. So tonight we're recording the episode out of the vault. It's a co-working space uh, out here in San Francisco. We're also recording the last episode of January, and we have a very remarkable guest. This episode, we truly saved the best for last. And Arthur, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, for sure. So we're out here with Kenyatta Layal. His friends call him Yada. He's a founding partner of Last Mile, which is a program that, that is teaching people how to code out of San Quentin Prison in partnership with Hacker Reactor. And for those of you that don't know, Last Mile has over 20 graduates and is currently expanding across prisons in the United States. And on this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of things, including criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, school-to-prison pipeline, and more importantly, the playbook that Kenyatta used to break into startups. Kenyatta, before we begin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what were you like as a kid? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Yeah, my name is Kenyatta Liao. Uh, I grew up in Southern California in Southeast San Diego. I grew up just like pretty much any other kid, you know, wanting to uh, be an athlete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I had dreams of being an NFL football player, but um, I experienced trauma, mm-hmm. you know, as a young person. My mother and my father divorced when I was about six months old. And so mm-hmm. I never had that influence from my father in my mm-hmm. life. And the way that my father left, it's one thing to have a parent absent in your life, but the way that the parent leaves mm-hmm. is a whole different story. You know, mm-hmm. it has an impact. And so for me, you know, my father abandoned mm-hmm. my mother and my two brothers when mm-hmm. I was six months old. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up never getting a Christmas present, mm-hmm. never getting a birthday card, never, you know, having my father there at mm-hmm. any of my football games or anything when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that had an impact on me. 
And I didn't really realize the fullness of the impact until fast forward 20 years until I was in prison Mm -hmm. and began to look at my life and really try to figure out how I went from being this little innocent child that was missing my father Mm -hmm. and feeling hopeless and helpless Mm -hmm. to this out of control adult who was running around with a pistol robbing dope dealers, Mm -hmm. you know, so had to connect the dots, so to speak, in my life and and figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting because we we do talk a lot about just the way upbringing affects things going forward. And, you know, you were aspiring to be a football player, but you had this trauma going on. You know, what did your life look like on a day-to-day basis growing up? Like, were you just playing sports every day? Were you in school at the same time? Or how did that look like? And how did you first get introduced into a life of what you were getting into before from a crime yeah. perspective? Well, I was in school every day. I mean, just like, you know, most kids, I went to school and I was actually good in school. But uh, at the same time, I was feeling like this. Uh, I was feeling like I was out of place. I felt less than because, you know, my father wasn't there. Other kids had their fathers there, you know, and, you know, kids are pretty brutal, you know <laughs> what I'm saying, with the teasing and all yeah. that. So mm-hmm. I got capped on as a kid about, you know, where's your dad and all this and that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and to compensate for that, you know, I lashed out mm-hmm. in different ways. And so, you know, I had to fight better than everybody else, I had to be faster, I had to jump higher, I had to throw the ball farther, I had to do all these other different mm-hmm. things to try to compensate for that. So, you know, dealing with that as a kid, I didn't really understand the impact of that trauma on me until I looked back on it. But, you know, as a kid, I was in school. Mm-hmm. I did good in school, got good grades and everything. But in the street, I saw a whole different, whole different picture, mm-hmm. you know, about how to get ahead in life. And I had one, one side of people that were telling me, you know, stay in school, stay in sports and this and that. And then, you know, on the other side, I had big homies, people that I looked up to, mm-hmm. father figures, so to speak, in the street who were making money. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like, before the crack epidemic hit, but I saw people doing illegal, illegal things in the street to make money. Mm-hmm. And so they had money, they had cars, they had women, they had all these things that mm-hmm. these glamorous things that you look up to as a kid. And for me, I wanted that, mm-hmm. you know? And so I started gravitating towards that because with my father not being there, I had this void in me. I felt less than, mm-hmm. you know, and I felt like there was something wrong with me. So I had to compensate for that. And so I was looking for external things to fill this internal void that I had. And I didn't really understand that until later on in life. But yeah. that was the beginning of this slippery slope that I went down that led to prison. Got it. Got it. We talk a lot about family as well. Um, and so, you know, it sounds like to fill the void, you were looking to these people that were the big homies that were either going to be like your family. But was it also, were you also talking to gangs as well? Because I know sometimes when you think about gangs, like people see that as their surrogate family was it did you choose to go might sound crew but like to go independent or did you want to align yourself with the crew in this new like life that you were choosing well a lot of the people that i knew i grew up in you know around a lot of you know gang activity but most of the people that i saw that were getting involved in the gangs they were getting caught going to juvenile Mm -hmm. hall for crime juvenile Mm -hmm. hall ya county jail in the prison Mm -hmm. and uh, as i got younger i recognized that the people that, that got the most, you know, that had the best reputation were the people that didn't get caught. Interesting. And so it was, it was really important to me to not get caught at the mm-hmm. things that I was doing. So when I started selling weed, don't get caught. Yeah. Yep. You know, when I started doing other things, don't get caught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so I didn't want to be like the people that went to prison. I wanted to be like people that didn't go to prison. Yeah. That didn't last too long though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like the angle you were taking was 
you wanted financial independence and like you wanted to be financially stable. And what you saw kind of, you mentioned that in school you were doing well, but then the reality of the streets was that if you wanted to prosper and if you wanted to achieve some level of success, then the role models that you looked up to were doing some some sorts of illegal activities. And it sounds like you didn't really want to join like a gang and just do it for the sake of crime. For you, it was more like an entrepreneurial angle where you wanted to make money, you wanted to achieve success. And uh, that involved sometimes breaking the law, but it wasn't, you weren't breaking the law because of, I guess for the sake of that, it was more like a means to an end, right? Is that what it sounds like? That's true. I mean, I felt like I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always had this hustle mentality about myself and the people that I knew around me always had that too. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of gravitated towards the people who were making money, even mm-hmm. if it was illegal, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, I didn't want to be like the people that, you know, that went to jail. I wanted to be like the people that were on the street that I saw, that I saw making money, yeah. you know, even if it was illegal, you mm-hmm. know, I, I figured that that was the way to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, I'm not unlike a lot of people, you mm-hmm. know, who are exposed to things in their environment and mm-hmm. they just naturally gravitate and mm-hmm. become, mm-hmm. you know, a product of their environment, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At that point, did you ever want to kind of set up, did you ever have like a goal of how wealthy you wanted to get and then say, hey, like if I get 100,000, for instance, I'll stop and I'll be able to start my own business. Is that something that you also like dreamed about or like what was your mindset? at that time uh, when you were thinking about kind of the future and the path you wanted to take? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, to be honest with you, I didn't even think that far. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think that I was going to mm-hmm. live till 30, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Yeah. And I saw so many people dying, you know, from where I came from, people that were dying, dying in prison, you know. So I just, I was thinking in terms of what I could get right here, right now and live it up to the fullest while I can. Would you describe your school as a feeder to prisons? like? A lot of people talk about school to prison pipeline and sometimes like how certain schools aren't necessarily teaching you a lot of things, even though it sounded like you were actually in a school that was teaching you a lot of things. But a lot of times like students in certain schools are seen as going to jail pretty commonly, pretty frequently. And so a lot of people refer to that as the school to prison pipeline. Was your school one of them or was it the people that you were affiliated with? I think it had to do more with the, the people that I was affiliated with because mm-hmm. really the bottom line is there were people from my neighborhood that went to the same schools that I went to mm-hmm. that made good choices mm-hmm. that became home homeowners and business owners and, yeah. you know, pro athletes and this and that. And there are other people that went to those same schools that made bad choices, wound up in prison that are dead yeah. right now. So I can't really blame it on the schools, but I will say that uh, the environment, mm-hmm. the community environment definitely had an impact on the choices that I made, Yeah, you know, and the choices that I made and the path that I took. Yeah. What age were you when you first went to jail and kind of like what were the kind of things that you, how long were you doing the dealing drugs and the robbing dope dealers? How long were you doing that before you got locked up the first time? Well, I initially went to prison when I was 22 years old and probably from about the age of 16 up until 22, Mm -hmm. I was committing a lot of crimes. I was selling drugs. I was, you know, like I said, robbing other drug dealers, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I was just looking for a source of of power because mm-hmm. I felt powerless in a lot of ways. So I was, like I said before, I was seeking those external factors to try to, you know, fill that internal void that I had. Money was one form of that. And then what I found through just this by happenstance was that guns mm-hmm. can make people feel really powerful. Yeah. You know, guns have power. I saw somebody get robbed right in front of me. 
get their whole sack of dope took right in front of me. And I saw how big people's eyes got and how scared people got once the gun got pulled. And I yeah. thought, hmm, yeah, let me try that. Yeah. yeah. So I went and got me the biggest pistol I could find. Yeah. And whenever I got an opportunity, I pulled it out. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I got to scaring people and doing just stupid stuff with guns. Yeah. You know, but, um, you know, it was, like I said, it was a slippery slope and it was something that, um, you know, I made these choices and I don't blame anybody in particular, not even my father or anything like that. You know, these were choices that I made, but looking back on it, I understand how these influences around me influenced, helped influence these choices that I did make though. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, a lot of times the decisions that you make, like once, once you get into these different spaces, cause you to think about sometimes they're, they're one as a, as a badge of pride, like getting locked up is seen as a badge of pride. Did you feel that way or was it, did you feel bad about your actions the first time? I feel really bad about my actions on the inside. Obviously I couldn't show that. Yeah. You know, I had to act like it, you know, it was no problem. It was all good. I was, you know, a tough guy or whatever, but inside, you know, I was, I was hurting because you know, I was away from my family. I was locked up. It was not a good place to be. Yeah. You know, but I think, you know, one of the things that, that I had developed at an early age too, was this like emotional disconnect. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, really wearing this mask Mm -hmm. to cover up what I was really feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, I have some pictures I'll show y'all later, but you know, pictures of me wearing this mask, a frown, a scowl, trying to look tough or whatever, but on the inside I was, I was hurt. Yeah. You know, I was scared. I was afraid. I was uncertain. And so, you know, a lot of the things that, that I went through, you know, the pain that I was going through and what took me so long to actually learn what I know today was that I was covering these things up. Mm-hmm. You know, inside prison, once I got there, I got to prison at the age of 22 and I learned really quickly that, you know, the only emotion that it's okay to show on the, in, you know, in prison is anger. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, you can't show any kind of, you know, happiness or, or sadness or, you know, fear or anything like that. The only emotion that you can show in prison, it's okay to show in prison is, is anger. Yeah. And you have to get really good at that. Yeah. You know, showing that and that comes out in all different kind of ways. So can you talk about what day to day life looked like in jail? Day to day life inside prison is a is a masquerade in a lot of ways. I mean, I think there are a lot of people. Well, let me speak for myself. I was inside prison uh, masquerading as this person who, you know, wasn't phased by the idea of doing time in prison, wasn't phased by the idea of being separated from my family. But on the inside, on the outside, I wore the mask, but on the inside, I was really scared. Yeah. You know, and so from day to day, you know, I went through my time just really, you know, at first I spent a lot of time masquerading. But, you know, as time went by, I spent more and more time thinking about me. How the hell did I get here? Yeah. Because I didn't come out of the womb being somebody who, you know, thought it was okay to run around with a gun or rob people or use drugs or sell drugs or any of that. You know, how did I get to that point? Yeah. You know, yeah. I started like really focusing on, you know, asking myself those tough questions, but I need to help though. Yeah. And I think the single most important thing that I did while I was in prison is ask for help to figure out these problems that mm-hmm. I was facing because mm-hmm. I couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. My own best thinking led me to prison. Mm-hmm. And so I needed help. Yeah. And I think that's super important to kind of highlight that whether you're, I mean, I think it's, your story is incredible. But there's a lot of people that find themselves in situations that they got themselves into in the outside world too. It could be in business, it could be in relationships, it could be 
various <laughs> situations and we've all made mistakes and sometimes when you're the one who got yourself in that situation it's hard to get yourself out of it and turning to people around you for help whether it's a mentor or someone who has more experience than you maybe someone who's been in those shoes before is super important but it also takes awareness and kind of putting your ego aside and going forward and asking for that advice right so i'm curious to hear kind of who did you turn for that help i turned to a lot of people um initially i turned to my family Mm -hmm. you know um I talked a lot about in letters and phone calls, you know, home to family about the situation that I was in. And, and, you know, to be honest with y'all, I mean, at first I was in denial for mm-hmm. a long time about the role that I played in getting myself into prison to begin with. And then, you know, as time went by, you know, more and more, I began to think about, you know, how did I get here and the things that, you know, that led me there, you know, and in different phone calls and letters, I'd be talking to my family about, Hey, you know, I, I don't want to be here. I want to come home. I want to do something different with my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I got the life sentence, I was thinking about, damn, I don't want to die in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm better than this. You know, y'all raised me better than this. This is what I would tell my mm-hmm. family in there. And my mom, I, I'll never forget that she came to visit me one day and I was telling her the same things that I'm telling you guys right now. She told me, baby, if you don't want to be in prison, act like it. That's act like it. That's mm-hmm. some good advice right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't keep doing the same thing and mm-hmm. expecting a different result. My mom always said, if you always do what you always done, you always get what you always got. Yep. You keep on doing what you're doing, you're going to keep on getting what you're getting. Mm-hmm. You plant peas, what you going to get? Peas. Plant corn, what you going to get? <laughs> corn. You keep on committing <laughs> crimes, you're going to keep on going to prison. And so, you know, it took me a long time to really accept that simple truth. But, and a lot of people told me that, but when she told me that, that mm-hmm. one time, mm-hmm. That's when it just really resonated with me that I needed to change the way that I think. Mm-hmm. Then I could change the way that I act and I could get a different result out of life. Yeah. How did your um, like friends in prison react to kind of your new attitude? Because I can imagine that you're literally fighting for your life. Like when you're um, putting this pretense, it's not just in your head. You want to act tough because you don't want to get picked on. You don't want to get stabbed, right? So. Once you started making those changes, what were your friends in prison doing and what were they saying? Yeah, I got a lot of different reactions from a lot of different people. People that mattered most to me, though, those were the people that, that supported me. Mm-hmm. You know, those were people that, you know, another thing that, that my mom told me was that, you know, show me five of your best friends and I'll show you your future. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Timo says something similar yeah. to that, we, too. We, we do say, like, you're the average of the five friends that you're closest with, so... Yeah, that's on point. Yeah. yeah. And so when she told me that, you know, I started thinking about the people that I was hanging around with and, and slowly but surely I started cutting those associations with people that were toxic in mm-hmm. my life. You know, if I wanted to change it, I need to do something different. And so I got some flack from some people. Say oh, things yeah. like, oh, he acting brand new or whatever. Yeah, you know. But like they say, like Jay Z said, what he says, like people look at you strange, say you change like you work that hard to stay the same. You yeah. know? I yeah. mean, you're doing this because are you trying to progress and Get so, better. So was this while you were still uh, in prison or was this kind of when you came out and you made that realization that, hey, I want to change my life around? Well, this this realization came during my second term. I've been to prison twice. My mm-hmm. first time I went to prison, I didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. I went in, did a bunch of push-ups, lift a bunch of weights and got out and fell right back in line with the same stuff that I was doing before. So 22 mm-hmm. to what age? 22 to 25. Got it. Mm-hmm. Within five months that I got released when I was 25 years old. Mm-hmm. I got pulled over on a routine traffic stop and the police found a gun in my car. Basically, I got pulled over. I'm on parole, so they get to search your car. They searched my car and they found a pistol in my car. 
the gun belonged to a friend of mine that was in my car, but because it was in my car, I'm in yeah. possession of it. Yeah. They call it constructive possession. Mm-hmm. And so I got 25 to life as a third strike for mm-hmm. a constructive possession of a firearm. During my second term, that's when I came to this realization. Mm-hmm. That's when I really started thinking about my life because, you know, the reality hits you. Mm-hmm. You know, when you walk in the California prison system with 25 to life, life means life. Yeah. You know, they ain't letting, back then they weren't letting too many people out with a yeah. life sentence. And yeah. so. And was that kind of, is your experience when you get such a long term different than when you get only like two to, two to three years? Absolutely. You know, when you get two to three years, 16, two or three, it's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly when I'm going to get out Mm -hmm. and I can do X, Y and Z until that day Mm -hmm. when I get out. And when I get out, it's all good. Mm -hmm. But this time around, I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, when I got to prison, I seen people, you know, getting killed around me. I saw people that had been in prison 30, 40 years, Mm -hmm. you know, people that are still there right now with Mm -hmm. that kind of time. And so. Mm -hmm. You know, I started thinking about my future. Everything got put into perspective really quickly, mm-hmm. you know, about my life. You know, and I, I knew that that I wasn't brought into this world to spend the rest of my life in prison. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was better than that. I knew that the man upstairs had a better plan for me. Mm-hmm. But I needed to do better mm-hmm. first and foremost in order mm-hmm. for those things to come, you know, to come to fruition. And so basically, I mean, I started examining my life and really looking at my life. And for so long, I had blamed so many other people. Mm-hmm was the judge's fault. It was my homeboy's fault for snitching on me. It was the judge. It was yeah. the DA. It was the three strikes law. It was all these other things that I was blaming. But ultimately, I came to this realization that I am the problem. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that made the choices. I'm the one that had the gun in my car. I'm the one that you know didn't listen. So that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. So if I'm the problem, then I must be the solution too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You know, so, and so, so did you, what did you start doing to make those changes? Like, what did you like, discover the library, start reading books? Did you, I know you talked to people before. Did you meet somebody else that was like, all right, here's the playbook? Or did you just come up with that yourself? Well, first I had to do what I told you all was the, probably the most important thing that I did when I was inside prison was learn how to ask for help. I mean, I came from an environment on the street where only sissies, punks, and probably some other words I shouldn't say on this podcast, you know, <laughs> ask for help. Those kind yeah. of people ask for help. So I had that that was one of the principles on my belief window was that as a man, I should have all the answers, you know, and only a punk is going to ask for help. And so, you know, that's what held me back for a long time. But what I realized was that I didn't have the answers and that I needed to ask for help. I needed some assistance to help figure this problem out. Cause let's face it, a life sentence in prison, man, you can't Google that one. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there ain't no technology is going to help you figure that out. And so, you know, I had to start asking for help. And um, I remember I was at Sentinel Estate Prison and there was this brother in the yard who everybody looked to for advice. And um, I was already little ways along in my process of change, you know, trying to change my life. And, you know, this brother literally, I mean, you had to like book time to walk some laps with this cat. You know wow. what I mean? He was that kind of guy. <laughs> and so I booked some time with him. We we're walking a lap or two and, you know, I'm hitting him up about what I was going through. And he's like, man, you know, what is important to you? What are your priorities? And he gave me a pencil and piece of paper and told me to write down the 10 most important things in my life. Interesting. Yeah. So I wrote them down and I gave him the piece of paper back. He looked at it. He says, youngster, you got 24 hours in a day. You work eight hours and you sleep eight hours. How many of those remaining eight hours do you devote to these things that you say are important to you? Mm -hmm. And then right then it was like a revelation to me because I realized that while I was talking about these things that were important to me, I really wasn't living it out in my life. Yeah. 
you know, and so slowly but surely I began to align my beliefs with my actions and started to take control of my life from that point. That's yeah. dope. Everybody and, got 24 hours in a day. Yeah. And um, it's usually pretty um, unheard of for someone who's inside the matrix to like consciously like take themselves out of it and say, hey, like I'm going in a loop. I'm repeating the same thought process. Like I'm reacting the same way how I usually react to these types of decisions to be able to take yourself out of it and seek help. It's a pretty like remarkable feat. When you were speaking to that gentleman in the yard, what do you think? Because we, we like to analyze leaders. We like to analyze people who have a lot of advice and mentors. What do you think made him so remarkable in terms of wh- why did people look up to him? Well, I think one of the things that made him remarkable to me was that he had done so much time in prison. He started his time in the 70s. He had been through all kind of race riots and all these different kinds of changes in prison that people have to endure while they're in there. And for anybody to have had to endured all those hardships for that long, that was somebody that I respected, you know, and he wasn't one of these guys that was just, you know, trying to put a pistol in the little homie's hands and send him on missions. He was really trying to like, you know, help people. Yeah. You know, he was going to be in prison for the rest of his life, but he figured that, you know, to redeem himself, that the best thing that he could do is help other people not make the same mistakes that he made. Yeah. And so I was one of the people that he took under his wing and he mentored me and he planted some of those seeds in me. And so that was what really made me look up to him. I mean, you could have 10 different people tell you the same thing, but there's always going to be one person who really yeah. gets through to you for whatever reason. Yeah. And for me, it was, you know, a lot of things about him that, you know, made me listen. That's awesome. Him. That's awesome. Do you remember any of the 10 things that you wrote down? Absolutely. Can you share them with us? Yeah. So number one was my education. You know, I, I said that my education was really important to me. And so, you know, I went back to school. I got educated. I got my GED. Ended up getting involved in the Prison University Project at San Quentin. Got my degree there. You know, I was valedictorian there. I dropped out of high school. So I said, you know, when I go back to school, I want to do this the right way. Awesome. I want to get straight A's all the way through. And so I did that. I said that my family was important to me. So, you know, I started, you know, reaching out to family in, in, a, in a really authentic way. Yeah. Really opening myself up and talking to them about not just, um, you know, the things that I was going through, but the things that I put them through. Yeah. Because what a lot of people don't realize is when you're doing time, you know, the people that love you, they're doing time in a lot of ways too. So, you know, I had to stop and listen to them, you know, feel their pain and really, you know, have some empathy and just, you know, connect with them on a level that, you know, that hadn't done before. Yeah. But I also said that, you know, my community was important to me too. You know, I had, I was the beneficiary of a lot of people that saw something good in me. Yeah. And took time to mentor me and help me. So I want to do the same thing for other people. And so, you know, one of the things that I started doing was getting involved in other programs inside prison to help other people. What kind of programs were those? Well, The Last Mile was one of them. San Quentin Trust, Project Reach, No More Tears, a whole bunch of them. Awesome, awesome. And we're going to talk about those in a second. One of the things that you covered about family that's interesting to me is you know, we're friends with Frederick Hudson who runs Pigeon Lane. He talks a lot about how hard it is to communicate to people on the outside. So can you talk about your experience trying to communicate with your family? Yeah, it was a really difficult process because, you know, you only get you know, 15 minutes on a phone call. A lot of times those calls get cut off or for whatever reason. So between that and just writing letters and the occasional visit, you know, those are the only forms of communication that you have with a family unless you got one of the police now that's going to bring you a cell phone or something <laughs> like that. But yeah, you know, it was really tough. And I kind of feel the residual effects of that now because I have people all the time that, that, that you know, that, that'll call me or text me and like, boy, how come you don't call me? How come you yeah. don't text me? 
and I've been programmed to like Not go tough. for yeah. long periods of time without communicating. You know, I have women in my life that you need to call me. <laughs> I'm like, well, I just called you last week. You know, but that's not the way it goes. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to communicate. And so I'm getting better at that. But on the inside, you know, I, like I said before, I had built up this emotional disconnect, you know, where I was just, I intentionally built that up because on the inside for holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, these kind of things, you know, it hurts to yeah. be away from your family. Yeah. So in, in my head, I used to think about it like, you know, it's just another day. Yeah. That's what, you know, the fellas used to say on the main line, you know, it's just another day. We got just got to push on through. And yeah. after doing that for 20 years, that has an impact. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you can't just get out and all of a sudden flip the switch and all of a sudden, you know, these things mean something all of a sudden all over again. But that was one of the ways that I dealt with communicating with my family on the outside to make it not hurt as bad as it really did. Yeah. You yeah. Know, but and before talking about the community projects that you were working on and then eventually what you were doing with last mile project, can you drop some like more of the gems that the OG kind of like share with you other than just like writing your things down? Yeah. He was somebody that, you know, that, that really believed in, you know, keeping it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is something that, you know, that I carry with me to this day, too, is to keep things simple and to, you know, to always be present, mm-hmm. you know, and it's one thing to do what you got to do when you're living on the inside to try to get by day to day. But when you get out, you have to let a lot of that stuff go. And so to be present on the inside, is a lot different to being present on the outside. You know, I'm here with y'all right now sharing my story. You know, a lot of people would you know, maybe be scared to, you know, to get up and talk about these things. But I think it's important for, for the people out there listening to know that, you know, people in prison are still people. Yeah. You know, and they're dealing with issues that many of us deal with, you know. And so I think being present, being authentic and standing up for what is right, you know, no matter what, you know, those are the, some of the, you know, really, really important things that, uh, that I took with me. Yeah, you know, the, the, that gentleman uh, shared with me there. Awesome. Can you share the work that you were doing with the other community organizations inside of prison and how they how they influenced your work with Last Mile Project? And maybe kind of touch on like what that school system was like too, because like we a lot of people don't even know that school systems exist inside of prison. And from what we understand, and you could correct us if we're wrong, you know, being educated does play a factor when it comes to recidivism and things like that. So uh, maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the studies show there, there's tons of evidence out there that the people, people who spend their time inside prison productively, you know, getting educated, learning trades and stuff that, you know, that definitely lowers the recidivism rate. And, you know, this is information that wasn't lost on me. You know, when I was in there, I knew that, you know, if I wanted to get out and stay out, and those are two completely different things, getting yep. out and staying out. If I wanted to stay out, then I had to educate myself. I had to work on myself. And so, you know, I immersed myself in, in every single, you know, self-help program that they had available, you know, to us on the inside. And some prisons have more programs than others. San Quentin is, is an outlier. San mm-hmm. Quentin has more programs than all the other prisons in California combined. Interesting. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to land at San Quentin and, you know, from there, you know, get involved in a ton of programs. I spoke a little bit about the program No More Tears. That had a really huge impact on me because No More Tears is a program that really revolves around individuals understanding where violence comes from within themselves. Forget about the community, but where does violence come from within you and how does the violence that you've committed impact not just yourself, but your family and the community as well? And 
you know, it was in No More Tears that I really began to understand, you know, the depth of the crimes that I committed, how it impacted not just myself, not just my family, but everybody around me. Uh, I remember um, one of the first classes that I went to with No More Tears, there was a family that came in. We used to have these things called the healing circle. Basically, the program was founded by a guy named Lonnie Morris. He's still at San Quentin right now. The brother's been in prison for about 40 years. But uh, he came up with this idea that if you bring survivors and perpetrators of crimes together, then there's healing there. Yeah. Because basically what happens is somebody commits a crime, they isolate that person in prison. The survivor of the crime is isolated in the community. Yeah. You know, and people will use them for political gain or whatever, but they really don't have an opportunity to have those kind of questions that they have. You know, like, why did this happen? Why did you do this? You never get answered. It's kind of like the right and the left and never coming together and talking about their differences and whatever they agree on and things like that. Exactly. So when you, when you bring the two together, there's healing there. And so we used to have these things called the healing circle where we would, you know, get together with survivors of crime, talk about the crimes that we committed, but more importantly, where, you know, how we got to that point where we could commit a crime and then about the crime itself. And I can remember the first time that I sat in the healing circle, I met the Ortiz family from here in the Bay Area. They came, it was the auntie and a grandmother who came to the circle to talk about one of their loved ones who was lost uh, through gun violence. I can remember there were about 50 so-called hardened convicts, lifers, sitting in this circle. And I can tell you that there wasn't a dry eye in that room. Everybody, including myself, left that room crying. And I remember thinking, you know, this could be my auntie. This could be my grandmother, you know? Yeah. And I started thinking a little bit further. It's like, wow. Now, I kind of developed an emotional connection with them. And then I started thinking further. It's like, damn. Now, I didn't kill anybody, but I still, I created victims out there like this. Yeah. You know? And so the really important piece that I took from No More Tears was that I was able to develop an emotional connection with the people that I committed crimes against. Yeah. So empathy is super important. Exactly. Got it. You know, for so long I was in denial about you know, how I got to that point, but No More Tears helped me develop a really clear understanding of, you know, the magnitude of the crimes that I committed and all the people that I impacted with those crimes. Yeah. And when did you get first introduced to the Last Mile Project and, you know, how was it described to you and why did it pique your interest? Well, like I told y'all earlier, you know, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And having gone through these other programs, I I was, you know, on the back burner, always looking for a way to channel that energy in a positive way. You know, No More Tears gave me some insight about, you know, the crimes that I committed and how it impacted everybody around me. But I still have this gift. I still have this this fire in me to do something, you know, to build things, to collaborate with people and to, to make a difference, you know, to innovate. And when I met Chris Redlitz, who, you know, is a VC here in the city, uh, he came to San Quentin to give a talk about business and entrepreneurship that ended up, you know, going a lot longer than he expected. And, you know, he left with this idea. He was running an accelerator at the time called Kick Labs and working with startups. And, um, you know, he thought, man, you know, after his visit to San Quentin, he's like, you know, a lot of these guys inside here have the same aptitude as the people Mm -hmm. that we work with. Wouldn't Mm -hmm. it be cool if you know, we could start an accelerator inside San Quentin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so one of my mentors on the inside introduced me to Chris and um, he, you know, introduced me to the idea of the last mile and an entrepreneurship program. And from the beginning, I was all in. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, so myself, brother named James Cavett, another brother named James Houston, David Monroe, and a guy named Eric Phillips. We were the initial um, five that helped start the group. And you know, the, the program is really revolved around, in the beginning, it was all about entrepreneurship, figuring out what you're passionate about, mm-hmm. taking that passion in the form of a business, and figuring out how to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And so we all did that. We came up with our ideas distilled them down into business plans and pitches that we pitched at a demo day. Mm-hmm. They brought in VCs and all kinds of people from the community into San Quentin where we pitched, you know, Shark Tank style. You know, that went really well. We did like three cohorts with that. And then we pivoted towards coding, mm-hmm. partnered with Hack Reactor. And I built this program called Code 7370, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a phenomenal program. The men inside and what soon to be women as well are, are learning how to code. You know, mm-hmm. 21st century job skill. That's what we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Now, how can we, how can we help best prepare? Because what we believe is that, you know, people have a job mm-hmm. skill when they get out. They're much more likely to succeed than people who don't have skills. Yeah. And so teaching 21st century job skills is like, you know, the primary focus of Code 7370 and Last Mile Today. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about the drive and kind of the potential that these uh, people have that are part of the program? And by that, I mean, like, I think it does take a level of hustle if you're in prison learning versus like you're going to college and your parents are paying for your tuition. Like what types of, um, like how passionate are these people about these opportunities? And also because you have no internet, right? Right. Yeah, so So how does that work? So basically what partnered with Hack Reactor, we came up with this uh, simulated online experience. And so the guys in there, it feels like they're online, but they really have no connectivity. Interesting. You know, because, you know, CDCR, they don't want allow internet on the inside. You know, we had to figure out, you know, a way around that. And that's one of the things that I love about, you know, the Last Mile innovative program. You know, if there's a problem, let's hack something, let's figure it out. You know, and so that's what basically what we did. But to answer your question about the passion of the men inside, I mean, you know, you're, you're dealing with a bunch of guys who've gotten to a point in their life where they realize that, you know, they've taken so much away from the community. It's right now, it's literally all about how can we give back? What can we do? I might not ever get out of prison, but what can I do today, right now, to make a difference in the community, a positive difference? And the last mile is an avenue to help do that. Yeah. So do they work on projects for outside companies or like what is the typical, um, I guess, what is the structure of the program? And then who, do the, who are the instructors and like how does that work? So basically... The guys will go through an interview process. They'll apply to be part of the program. And let's face it, not everybody's cut out to be a coder. You know, so, so guys will apply for the program. And uh, you know, the, the, uh, the program facilitators will go through all the applications and they'll whittle them down. They'll do interviews with people that they select and they'll do another round of interviews and whittle that down. Because the reality of it is, is there's not enough space to take everybody. So they select the best of the best out of the applicants. They go through, I think it's like a, a six-month course with instructors that, uh, that they bring on. Start off with people from Hack Reactor. I believe there's still some people from Hack Reactor there, but other you know, volunteers who come in to volunteer their time. We have some paid instructors as well. They'll figure out a project that they could work on. In the past, what they've done is collaborated with guys from the entrepreneurship program. Guys from the entrepreneurship program will come up with the idea. Guys from the coding program will develop it, and then they'll both present at demo day. Yeah. And it's a, it's a phenomenal program, man. I mean, it's helping a lot of people turn their yeah. lives around. And you're basically kind of building the project, collaborating with, I guess, 
engineering. So if you're an entrepreneur, then you get that experience speaking to engineers. If you're an engineer, you get that experience speaking to, I guess, the product, like the people behind the vision. And then you could potentially use that as a resume piece if you ever decide to pursue it as a job, right? Correct. And so Code 7370 is just one piece of the puzzle here. So basically what the guys will do is they'll go through Code 7370. Once they graduate from that, then they'll be eligible to be part of what we started as a joint venture. It's a joint venture program with Cal PIA and The Last Mile. And basically what we're doing is once the guys graduate from Code 7370, they can apply and eventually get into the the joint venture program. Mm-hmm. The joint venture program works with outside companies where instead of outsourcing jobs to, you know, overseas or whatever, they'll insource them into mm-hmm. San Quentin. So mm-hmm. companies here can, you know, send jobs and projects inside the prison and the guys in there will help build them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And the guys inside will get paid a lot more than they would in a regular prison job. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll get paid like I think between 15 and 20 bucks an hour in there. Wow. Nice. Where the average job, you get paid, you know, pennies on the dollar. Interesting. You know, 10, Interesting. 15 cents an hour in there wow. normally. So you basically go from making, I don't know, 15 cents working for one of the like in prison corporations versus if you do software engineering or if you learn how to code, then you could be making 10, $15 a month. Exactly. You get to pay your restitution fine. You get to save some money for when you come home, but more importantly, you'll be developing a skill for your future. Totally. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think that's really the important piece. I mean, with the entrepreneurship part of the program, it was great because we got to really understand what entrepreneurship is about, but you know, it's much more important to have like an applicable skill, skill set and develop, you know, coding is, you know, it's, it's a fantastic skill set to have yeah. you know, for anyone, yeah. not just somebody getting out of prison. Can you talk a little bit more about some struggles that someone that is leaving prison faces when they're applying for a job that aren't typical? Yeah, I think that really self-efficacy is one that I think a lot of people getting out of prison, you know, need to develop. Understanding that you can do something, that you can do it. You know, even though you've been to prison, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't do it. You know, being aware of you know, your potential and knowing that you can get the job done, you can do something, you can learn new things, you can work with other people, something that's super important. I think that a lot of people get out of prison and they just automatically feel like, you know, people are going to just close the door on them. They're not going to get opportunities. There's a lot of guys in there that believe that when they get out, it's going to be super hard struggle. They're not going to have a chance. They're not going to have an opportunity. Nobody wants to hire them. So they have to go back to what they did before. So a lot of times it's mental instead of like, I know we're going to talk about this, how you like left prison and started working, but did you get rejected a lot or what, what was that process like? Well, for me, I earned an, an internship with Rocket Space uh, through my participation in the Last Mile program and many of the other guys that, you know, you go through the program, that's, that's something that, that you have to look forward to. But for a lot of people who didn't go through the Last Mile, who don't have those opportunities, then yeah, that's something that they face, yeah. a lot of rejection, you know, and I faced it before too, even before... And I got out the first time, I had a lot of people that didn't want to hire me because, you know, they found out that I was an ex-felon. And it's, there's shame involved with that. There's guilt involved with that. And you don't want to, you know, really be transparent about yourself and where you come from. So you tend to like close up, you know, close yourself off and, you know, have this really myopic view of life so, in general. So what's your strategy to own up to it and tell your st- story in a certain way? Or? Absolutely. Own it. Yeah. Whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that you said, own it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. That was another thing that Big Brother told me when I was yeah. in prison. Own your shit, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Own it. 
Yeah. You know, when you own it, then people can't use it against you. you yeah. Know? And I think it also goes back to like, instead of putting up another wall, now that you're out, like interviewing with companies or just interacting with people on, on the outside, instead of hiding that, you're uh, just saying, hey, like, this is what happened to me. I'm going to live in the future and the present, not the past. Your story is actually pretty remarkable because you said initially when you got the sentence, like, what would you say were the chances of you coming out and finding jobs in tech? And then th- throughout the whole process, you kind of visualized that you believed something that I'm sure many people around you doubted you. And how were you able to overcome all those doubts? And like, what were you telling yourself every single day when you were coming in and like trying to learn and better yourself? You know, you, you said something, one word that you said right now is just really resonated with me and that's visualization mm-hmm. that you visualize something. Um, you know, I, I laid in my bunk inside San Quentin and all these other prisons, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about and visualizing how I wanted to live my life, the steps that I needed to take to get there. And once I get there, how I'm going to do it. And I thought about that over and over and over and over again, every single day started with me, you know, I used to play football inside prison and I would just, you know, like lay in my bunk and think about, you know, how I'm going to look off the safety and, you know, throw a perfect spiral and I'm going to make a touchdown as, you know, that's I used to think about that before yeah. the game. And then when I'd go down there and do it, people would be like, man, how'd you do that? I'm like, man, I, <laughs> You got to see it before you do it. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I started applying those same principles to my own life. I wanted to interact with the community, how I wanted to work hard, you know, how I wanted to you know, just do everything in my power to, you know, to elevate my life for my future. And these are things that I did on a day-to-day basis on the inside prison. And when, now that I'm here, it's like, now that I'm doing it, it's like, I've been thinking about this all along and it's not yeah. that hard, you know, but um, it's, uh, I think if there, there's, like I said before, there's no manual to how to survive a life sentence, but if there was one chapter would be all about visualization. Yeah. Yep. Can you share with our listeners how you actually got released because I know it's a remarkable story. I think there's a few articles online, but can you just tell our listeners what happened? Yeah, so I was sentenced to 25 to life for being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm under California's three strikes law. In 2012, California voters passed an amendment to the law, Prop 36, which made, so basically it changed the law so that in order to receive a life sentence, it had to be a violent or serious third strike. My third strike, possession of a firearm, is neither violent nor serious because it was just simple possession. I wasn't actually, you know, using mm-hmm. the gun in commission of a crime. It was just in my car. The only thing that makes it a felony is because I am an actual felon. Yeah. So that's what happened. So I, I got a life sentence for that. And, you know, while I was in the inside, I started helped start the program The Last Mile. This was in 2010. And through that work, I met Duncan Logan, the founder and CEO of Rocket Space in 2012, actually 2011, 2012. In 2012, Prop 36 was passed. And in 2013, I applied for resentencing. The same judge who sentenced me to 25 life, I presented him with a whole package of information about me, the things that I had done. You know, what were those things? That, what were those things in those packages? Well, I mean, all of my work and the programs that I've been involved in, me going back to school, um, all the different things. I wrote him a serious, you know, letter about you know the crimes that I committed and the things that I had done to harm my community. But more importantly, how I actually got to that point, you know, sharing my life with him the same mm-hmm. way I'm sharing it with you guys yeah. right now, and really being transparent about the things that I had done and taking ownership of, you know, the crimes that I committed. And, but more importantly, what I was going to be doing 
you know, in the future, you know, what I saw for myself in the future. And the judge looked at all that and he realized that I wasn't the same person, you know, 20 years later mm-hmm. that I was when he first sentenced me. And um, he agreed to resentence me to seven years. And um, about a week after that, I walked out of San Quentin a free man. July wow. 3rd, That's July awesome. 3rd wow. 2013. Amazing, amazing. amazing. Well, so it sounds like a lot of that pitch training that you went through in the first iterations of, of The Last Mile um, might have helped in the presentation to the judge. Would you say that's accurate? Well, I didn't actually get to see the judge in person. Got it. So my lawyers, the attorneys who, who um, represented me, they came from the Stanford uh, Three Strikes Project. Michael Romano, Emily Galvin, Susan Champion, all those people from Stanford, you know, go Stanford. You know, go they Stanford. represent. <laughs> <laughs> Man, they did a fantastic job. They picked up my case and they ran with it. And uh, when Prop 36 was passed, they represented me. Amazing. And they... um. They actually worked really hard to get me where I am today. Yeah. So awesome. one of the things that I guess a lot of our, a lot of the people on the podcast, when they look for jobs, they always reference Quora or like Twitter, but Twitter and Quora, I, I, don't, I don't know if this is true, but I read one of the articles about you online. It actually helped you with uh, some of your release, right? Yeah, it's, well, I wasn't actually at the actual hearing, but uh, my family members and Chris Redlitz from the last mile were there and apparently well, let me back up a little bit. So when we first started The Last Mile, Chris and Beverly were really big on being transparent about Be- our- Beverly is. Beverly Parenti, yeah. She's a co-founder of Last Mile, Chris, Le- Chris Redlett's wife. But they were really big on us being transparent about ourselves, about the crimes we committed, about our lives, about our hopes, our dreams, the future, everything. And so one of the ways that they came up with us being able to, to be transparent is to write uh, blog posts for the daily love. We started doing that and we started tweeting at first. And then we started this program with Quora where we started answering questions on Quora about incarceration. And um, so that's probably what you saw yeah. some of that. What would, so, what would that process be like? Because you didn't have internet. So how did you guys get those? <laughs> right. So they would bring pieces of paper in with these <laughs> questions on them. They'd give them to us one day. They'd come back a couple of days later and we'd have responses for them. That's awesome. We would write a hundred. We had these things called tweet sheets. And they were little like graphs with squares, 140 squares on them. We'd write our <laughs> tweets on there and we wouldn't have the, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. the instant feedback that you get from Twitter. But it was cool because all the tweets that we were sending out and all the blog posts that we were writing and all the, the answers that we were question answers that we were given on Quora, we were getting a ton of feedback from the community about the stuff that we were writing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's really, it was really powerful for me in particular because, and I, for the other guys too, because. You know, in prison, you don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody listens to people in prison. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks, oh, you committed a crime. You deserve to be there. Lock them up, throw away the key, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, there are a lot of people inside prison that, that have a lot to contribute, mm-hmm. have a voice, man, yeah. that can make a difference. And so, you know, these social media actually gave us a voice. Quora gave us a mm-hmm. voice. Twitter yeah. gave us a voice that we didn't have before. Yeah. And it was a really transformative process for me because to that point, up until that point, I was really, really skeptical yeah. about not just opening myself mm-hmm. up, but let alone do it on, a, yeah. you know, <laughs> tweets or, uh, you know, that process for me was really eye opening. It's yeah. opened me up to a lot of different things. So it was powerful. Very cool. Very cool. For people that are employers and they're thinking about, you know, graduates from this program or just people that have a felony on their record and might have something that comes up in a background check, what are some skills that you develop from hustling in the streets or why would I choose to hire someone that has a felony versus someone that might have a traditional background? And like, what skills did I develop that sets me apart from everybody else? 
Yeah, well, I think for, for employers out there that are thinking about hiring somebody that's leaving an incarcerated setting, what you're going to get is a really, really dedicated person, somebody who's going to work 10 times harder than the average person. You know, they're coming from nothing. They're getting a second chance. You know, I'll, I'll take myself, for example, you know, when I first hit up Duncan about an internship with Rocket Space, I told him, I said, man, I'll, I'll bust my tail if you give me an opportunity. And when he did, I mean, I went into Rocket Space from day one with this mindset that I don't give a damn if I got to, you know, dump trash, if I got to make coffee, if I got to scrape gum off the floor, I'm going to be the best trash dumping, coffee making, <laughs> gum scraping person that they've ever seen at Rocket Space. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever had this job before me, they're going to forget about them because I'm going to kill it. You know, and that's that was my mindset. And that's what I know the guys in the last mile. That's their mindset as well, too. And so if any employers out there thinking about hiring somebody formerly incarcerated, come talk to me because we got people waiting. Awesome. And then can you talk a little bit about the kind of, I guess, the tech work that the other program does and like what companies could expect and what type of projects do they usually work on? Well, that's something that's a little bit outside of, you know, my realm of being able to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not working super closely with Code mm-hmm. 7370. I'm not a coder. Yeah. So I don't have all that technical coder, mm-hmm. you know, speak right now. But I could definitely connect you with the right people to mm-hmm. answer those questions. Yeah. I know that we have guys that are, you know, killing it with the program right now. People mm-hmm. that are like, you know, chomping at the bit to, to take on more and more and more. And like I said, with the joint venture program, and outside of that, what we're also working on is, is a dev shop on the outside. Mm-hmm. So guys will start off with Code 7370, they'll go through that, then they'll go through the joint venture program. And then when they come home, you know, in the process of them getting jobs with other companies, we'll also have a dev shop for them to, you know, to work on projects there as well. So yeah, there, there are a lot of opportunities for guys when they, when they come home through the program. And we feel like, you know, any employer out there that's willing to give one of our people a shot, they won't be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. And here's another question that you know may or may not hit a little bit harder. You know, you're fresh out. You're starting this new job. Somebody takes a chance on you. Do you ever get people that are skeptical and they're like, kind of like they act like they trust, but they might like think that you're still going to steal something or beat somebody <laughs> up. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there's there's plenty of people like that. Um, yeah. You know. I just think it's natural for people to be a little bit skeptical, yeah. you know, especially from somebody coming out of prison. Yeah. You know, um, one of my missions was to give the people that have that kind of mindset a different set of facts yeah. to look at yeah. before they make a decision. Yeah. You know, and so I wanted to show them that, you know, I work hard just like them. Yeah. I have integrity just like them. Yeah. I'll show up early, leave late, work weekends, do all the different things that make a good worker. Yeah. And not just for a day or two, but consistently over time. Yeah. And I think that sooner or later, people begin to see, hmm, you know, this guy ain't that bad. Yeah. He really is the real deal. Yeah. Respect and trust is earned. And, you know, maybe at first, instead of making it, making you feel super bad about it, you used it as like, no, I'm going to prove to them that we can, you know, prove that we we can be trustworthy and I'm going to appreciate the second chances. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we all have expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, when I got out, I had expectations of my for myself. And my aim was to, you know, is to exceed all of the expectations of the people had of me and even the expectations for myself. Yeah. And right now I, I find myself in a position that, you know, I never would have dreamed of having when I was on the inside. I mean, I didn't envision myself working you know, being the manager of campus services at Rocket Space. Yeah. I didn't. 
but here I am, yeah. you know, and, and here I am in a position where I'm actually, you know, hiring other formerly incarcerated people yeah. to work with me at yeah. Rocket Space. So, you know, it's dreams do come true. And Can hard you tell the listeners what Rocket Space does and um, what your role, day-to-day role is there? Yeah. So uh, Rocket Space is a technology campus here in San Francisco. We've got about 150, 160 tech startups on our campus. And we focus on, I wouldn't say late, but probably in between Series A and Series C startups, you know, you have to raise a round of funding or two. You have to be actually have a real product that you have out there. It has to be a tech-related product. And um, we do that. We provide, you know, all the services for them when they come in. So it's kind of like a hotel for tech startups. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a corporate innovation services program where we're, we're kind of like the at an intersection between startups and corporates. We help corporates keep up with technology so they can stay relevant in their space. Mm-hmm. And That's help. important work right there. Absolutely. And so we help startups connect with those corporates as well. So we've had some success there too. Yeah. One thing that um, we haven't asked you yet is since you've um, been released, uh, how did your family react to this transformation? My family has been overwhelmed by the change that I made. I mean, they know the old yada. They know, you know the things that I used to do in the past, but they're super proud of me and the, and the changes that I've made today because I think, you know, when I was in prison, you know, a lot of people forgot about me. A lot of people left me for dead. My family was always there for me. They always believed in me. They always saw the things in me that I'm doing today. They always knew that I could do these things. They were baffled by the choices that I made as a young person, <laughs> but they're really proud of me today and the choices that I'm making today. And my mom is like my biggest supporter. That's beautiful. That's, That's beautiful. And, and I mean, you're managing people, you're managing things in our rocket space. And you're also a leader in the community. So you're taking what you were doing in prison with these community programs. And now you are expanding this type of program to other prison systems. Can you talk about that and your thoughts on like criminal justice reform and things? Yeah. So like I said before, I mean, we're, we're really, really adamant about the idea that having a job when you get out of prison is super important to break in the cycle of incarceration. And so we're focused on four prisons in California right now. We've had, you know, invites to come and work in different states, but we're really focused on California right now. California has the biggest prison system in the United States. There are a lot of, I think there's what, 33 prisons in the state of California. So we're really focused on getting the model down here first before we scale to other places. Yeah. Instead of going wide and, you know, narrow, we want to go, or wide and shallow, we want to go, you know, narrow and deep, you know, with what we're doing. And so- we're really working on fine-tuning a sustainable program here in California. And once we do that, then we're going to, you know, move to some other places. But, you know, it, the work has been really hard. I mean, it's been a slow process. The one thing that I love about Chris and Beverly coming from, you know, the startup community, they really understand what, you know, they introduce us to the lean startup yeah. you know, mentality, <laughs> how yep. you do it. And they've taken that mentality into the nonprofit world and it works. Yeah. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Awesome. That's amazing. This might be a dumb question, and it's more no philosophical, but why do you think uh, prisoners are not allowed to be online? And I'm not saying, like, go to Spotify or SoundCloud and listen to music, but why don't we provide people who want to learn and use internet as a resource that opportunity? And that's a great question. I think that one word sums it up, and that's fear. You know, yeah. the, prison, the prison system and the people who run it are afraid to give people on the inside that kind of access because they're afraid that something bad is going to happen on mm-hmm. their watch. Mm-hmm. What if you just provided like access to maybe like online like Coursera or like online uh, learning websites so they could learn different skills? Maybe they could learn like 
economics or maybe subjects that are not even offered in those prisons. I think it's moving in that direction slowly mm-hmm. but surely. Just like any kind of large company, it takes a long time for that company to pivot to certain things, you know, and it's the same thing with these bureaucracies, whether it be a federal level or a state level, you know, the prison system is no different, you know, and there's a, I think that there's two different camps, you know, when it comes to the Department of Corrections. There's this camp that really believes in CDCR, what that stands for, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. There's people who really believe that. And then there's other people that just want to, you know, people that come through prison, they believe they just lock them up and throw away the key, stack them up like cordwood, and that's it. You know, and so there's an internal battle there. Right now, with Jerry Brown as the governor, we've we've seen, you know, the proliferation of a lot of programs, including the last mile, a lot more funding going to rehabilitative programs, because they understand that you can't just take all of the resources and put them at the front end and locking people up when you know, 75 plus percent of the people are actually going to get out of prison. If they get out of prison and they don't learn anything while they're inside, they don't really rehabilitate themselves. They don't have any training. Then guess what? They're going to go back to. Yeah. And so it makes a lot of sense for taxpayers to, you know, and elected officials to really, you know, get involved with these programs and invest in them heavily because, you know, the community deserves it. You know, yeah. if you're, if you're a company and you have, you know, you're looking at, I'll just put it like this. The California Department of Corrections has a, a recidivism rate of 60%, over wow. 60%. Six out of 10 people come back. Something's broken there. Yeah. Any other business, you know, the, the CEO of that would be fired. Yeah, 60, you know? 70% failure rate. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so I think that people are actually getting that now. Taxpayers are becoming more aware of what's going on with the resources, their tax, where their tax dollars are going. I think, you know, we've reached a point where we have you know, people who are in office here in California, I can't speak for anywhere else, but here in California where they're, they understand that, you know, these programs actually make a difference. People like me without the last mile, I mean, who knows where I'd be right now? So programs do work. I'm yeah. living proof of it. And a quick question. So uh, kind of just on the topic of criminal justice reform, it sounds like over the last few years, politicians started introducing new legislature to d- reduce sentencing for nonviolent crimes. Can you just talk a little bit more about kind of what type of reforms are taking place now and where do you see it going and kind of any advice you would want to have for maybe politicians or people like leaders listening? Just curious. Well, I think when you talk about where politics and where where it's going right now, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's up in the air right now. Mm -hmm. As we speak, there's a lot of uncertainty about, you know, the future, about this country, where we're going and a lot of the choices that are being made at the executive level right now. We've made a lot of progress over the last, I'd say, 10 years in terms of criminal justice reform. I think there are a lot of people on both sides, both you know, conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, that understand that the system, the current system that we have right now is broken and changes need to be made. And there's this movement to being smart on crime. You know, Instead of being tough on crime, be smart on crime. I'm not sitting here saying that people that you know, commit crimes don't you know, deserve some kind of punishment. But if you really want to make a difference in the community, if you really want to, you know, end recidivism, if you really want our public to be safe, you know, then there's there's steps that we can take. I mean, we look around the world, we look at, you know, a lot of the programs that have been implemented here in the United States, we know that they work. Mm-hmm. Education works. Job training works, mm-hmm. you know, to help curb recidivism. And so, you know, I think the message is really getting through and we're, I think we're at a peak right now of what when you look at the pendul- at the pendulum where it's swinging right now, it's totally swinging towards programs. But with the Trump administration, I'm just going to come right out and say it. 
I mean, I don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when totally. we take a look around what's going on, the, the climate, the political climate right now, I would just really encourage, you know, our elected officials out there to, to be courageous, stand up, speak up. You know, if it's something that you believe in, if you see something is wrong, then do something about it. Yeah. You know, our country is, is the greatest country on this planet. You know, we have a great opportunity to lead the world in the right direction. And, uh, you know, we're, in, we're facing some turbulent times, but I'm a firm believer in that, you know, the greatest challenges present the greatest opportunities. Yeah. Yep. So it's up to us. Thank you so much. So at this point in our podcast, we do the lightning round and we're going to pretty much ask you several questions. They're not necessarily geared towards like your uh, personal like life, but it's more about tactics, uh, strategies that you can provide to our listeners so they can apply it to their life. So with that said, Arthur, go ahead. Yeah. So this question takes it back to the basics. Imagine that you just moved to a new city. You only have $100. And you're starting from scratch and you're trying to like reinvent your life. And I think you might like from your you, story. You just like you just got released from prison. Yeah, you only you have hundred dollars. Yeah. What do you do and how do you bring yourself back on your feet to set yourself up for success? Oh, wow. First thing I'm going to do is ask for help. I'm going to look for some resources, man. I'm going to go online. I'm going to go to the first library. I'm going to figure out where the resources are and I'm going to show up at their door and ask. I need some help. Yep. You know, and so that's the, that'd be the first thing that I do. $100, $1. First thing I'm going to do is ask for help. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 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 So this is going to be a two-part question. So usually we talk about whenever you're in a dark time, what, like, let's say, you know, when you got released, you were in 22 to 25, right? When you got back in jail the second time, you got the 25th of life, you know, what kind of music did you think about? What kind of movie did you think about to help you, like, you know, cope with that type of situation. And then the second question that I'm going to ask you related to this is like, we talked in the beginning about how you're thinking about Sirius and radio. I'm not sure if there's like any radio programs or podcasts that you recommend that people in prison listen to if they listen to these types of things and, you know, things that they can think about for motivation. Well, they're not able to listen to podcasts on the inside, but uh, there's a lot of information, books and stuff that people read. One of the, you know, when they talk about music, I listen to a lot of a lot of reggae music, you know. I, I listen to you know, all different kinds of artists, but like the, Bob and Sizzler. Yeah, yeah mostly okay. more Bob than Sizzler, but um, <laughs> Sizzler, Sizzler, he ain't no joke either. But uh, <laughs> now I listen to a, a lot of Bob Marley, a lot of uh, different other reggae artists out there with a positive message to keep myself motivated, you know, so I keep a positive vibration moving forward. I like know? that. I like that. The things that I do, movies that I watch. You know, there were certain things that I just chose not to even pay attention to anymore. You know, there were a lot of dudes that would sit up and couldn't wait till Jerry Springer came on. <laughs> Had to cut that out. Yeah. No Jerry Springer. So I was constantly feeding myself with positive energy, positive affirmations, things that could help me move forward with my life. Yeah. Um, one of the authors that I used to read all the time was uh, this lady by the name of Ian Levanzant. Okay. Yeah, she has a book called Acts of Faith. And every day I used to read one page from Acts of Faith. You know, and I read that book over and over again, probably about 20 times. You I like know what that. I mean? But um, very, very motivational book. Kept me solid. Kept me, you know, kept my head on straight. We'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. And I actually have two questions too. So the first one is, if there's someone who's listening to the podcast now who's in prison and they might be sentenced to life in prison or like, what advice do you have for them? And the second one is, I know that you can't, we can get the podcast to prison, but if we have transcriptions, can you help distribute them? 
or can you help us uh, connect to the right people to distribute them? I can definitely connect you to the right people. And we could see about making that happen. What was the first part of your question? I'm sorry. The first one was advice for someone who is in prison now. Okay. Advice for somebody that's in prison now, I would, I would definitely encourage them to, to stay positive, think positive, always stay focused on the, the light at the end of the tunnel, no matter what the homies say, no matter what the judge said, no matter what the CO you know, on the gun tower says, stay focused on that, that light at the end of the tunnel and um, keep moving forward, ever backward, never. And write down your 10. And write down the 10 most important things in your life and stick yeah. to it. And how to apply those extra eight hours towards it. Absolutely. That's what I took away from this. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So for the listeners who are uh, listening right now, how do they get in touch with you? And then uh, are you the projects that you are working on, are you looking for any types of help, mentorship, any volunteers? Uh, feel free to shout them out. Yeah, so I would encourage people to check out at TLM on Twitter, The Last Mile, uh, on Facebook. You can check me out at Rocket Space. I'm here at 180 Sansom every day You know, during the week. If you just want to connect, grab a coffee or something and just hang out and chat more. Yeah. Are you on Twitter or like how could people actually reach you? And- you can check me out at Chris Fino Leal, Twitter. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Yeah. I know it's been a long time coming. Uh, we're excited to see you expand and uh, we'll talk to you once you have expanded beyond California. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, fellas. And uh, thank you to everybody out there listening. Yeah. Right. Thanks awesome, a lot, man. man. Thanks. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.